I'm Laura Mache. I'm Zolivary Nelson Jr. And I'm Jim Stormdancer. And this is the first topic, Laura, where everybody said their full name. Uh, congratulations. Thanks. There's enough information to dox everybody now. Before I moved mm-hmm. to California, everybody referred to me by my whole name. Really? Like my friends in every context in like high school and college all referred to me as Laura Mache, my full name. Were there a lot of Lauras? No, they just liked doing that. I can, would you would you like me to start? No, you don't need to. Uh, it, it came out during a previous episode that Jay Tolan didn't know how to pronounce his name. What? Because it was either either Tholen or Tolan. And I made him decide. And from now on, if anybody says Tholen, I'm correcting them. I had to correct him last episode. I fi- you had to correct Jay himself um, on the pronunciation of his own name? Because he, he, he'd forgotten how to pronounce his own name and I had to tell him. Okay, so at least he decided. Uh, Laura, is there, um, would you like to introduce yourself or is there anything you'd like to plug? Sure, yeah. Uh, my name is Laura. I do both indie game development and giant megacorp game development. Uh, the thing I want to plug is that the, uh, my, the the company that I work for during the daytime, Riot Games, recently published a physical book that contains my writing. Uh, that's what I do, writing and editing. I wrote a short story in Realms of Runeterra, uh, oh. which is the very first League of Legends published book. And you can you can buy it and read it if that's your jam, if you like the the Runeterra universe. Is that your first published book? Yes, this is indeed my first published book. I've been publishing my writing in various contexts for a decade, but this is the first time it's been in a book. Which is pretty cool. All the rest of the time, it was in indie games. Was uh, was Frog Fractions Two your first boxed video game? Yes, P- Frog Fractions Two was my first boxed video game, and that happened the same month, I think, as my That's first. That's a book. very exciting month. Yeah, I got a published boxed video game with you, Frog Fractions Two, and I got a published physical book device uh, for my job. And I'm working on some indie games and everything's chill. That's very cool. Yeah. Nelson, can you top that? Uh, probably not. My name is Olivier Nelson Jr. I'm a freelance narrative director for a bunch of cool things, including Hypnospace Outlaw, which I worked with uh, Jay Tolan on, and the upcoming <laughs> Skatebird. Uh, the thing I'm plugging is... An airport for aliens currently run by dogs, which is my new first-person open-world narrative puzzle game, uh, which I'm developing openly through Patreon. Uh, and actually, the name of my game might might top your box box game accomplishments. I'm not sure it does. I think it's just <laughs> it's just a, an achievement of a different kind. I've just lost a little bit of my dignity, but I'm owning it, as opposed to you who have gained dignity in your unstoppable uh march towards supremacy laura i've seen i've I've known you for a few years now and you just keep rocking stuff i'm very happy for you thank you and and i for you i'm excited to experience what it's like when an airport for aliens is run by dogs instead of humans or aliens yeah i think the the name it's a very good name but the real accomplishment will be um following up on the promise of that name in the very first day of, of post launch uh a player 
na- uh, named Jessica Ross, I believe, sent me a picture of that they had totally ignored uh, attempting to get a flight or meet any of the dogs around the airport and had instead created an igloo out of boarding passes because I allow players to not only spawn boarding passes infinitely by talking to the dogs at the ticket counters, but also, if they choose, spawn 50 physics rigid bodies shadow casting boarding passes all at once, all at the same time, dumping them all over the desk. And uh, Jessica decided to pick up all of these boarding passes and make an igloo out of it. Uh, So I'm feeling pretty good about the promise of this airport run by dogs. I'm excited about a boarding pass that casts a shadow. Yeah, I've never seen one of those. I'm terrified, but uh, I'm happy that you're happy. Are you guys ready to discuss some topics? My whole body is vibrating into another dimension with the with the promise okay. of topics. Okay, so it sounds like we shouldn't discuss topics. We don't want to lose you. I want to ascend. Let's do it. Okay, okay, all right, all right, all right. Uh, Nelson, you have here Mothman discuss, and that was your order to us, but I'm flipping it around on you. I think Mothman is a fascinating construct, uh, primarily because in the field of cryptids, uh, of which the Mothman is one, uh, Mothman has a catchy, identifiable, relatable name, like Mm -hmm. Slide Rock Bolter legendary creature my good friend kevin snow's favorite cryptid but there isn't much to hang on to with the slide rock bolter is is he gonna appeal to adult males from 18 to 35 i don't know but the mothman now that's a guy that you can put in a budweiser commercial now that's a guy who can also steal people from their homes in the dead of night and carry them elsewhere living the life really he does everything Mothman is also a man, if you're afraid he's going to steal you from your home, you can just put like a really bright light outside and he'll get stuck there. Yeah, he's incredibly vulnerable, incredibly powerful, and charismatic all at once. Is he the perfect cryptid? Maybe. I certainly think he is better than Bigfoot, and I will stand by that. So, I don't want to turn this into a a pissing contest. My favorite cryptid is the Hopkinsville Goblin. You guys familiar? No, but I want to learn. I I feel like I need to know way more about this before I get to talk authoritatively about it. But basically a bunch of um, people living in a rural area were out in the woods at night and they encountered this uh, aggressive uh, group of creatures and they they counted like like 15 of them, but later admitted that they only ever saw two at once. Um, And then looking at like sketches of them, it becomes clear to to like people putting together the accounts that uh, these are um, great horned owls protecting their nest. <laughs> Large birds are frequently mistaken for cryptids, particularly because they look strange when wet or diseased. Right. Yeah. Uh, I will put a link in the show notes to a video that I saw recently of someone filming, a, like they're they're like shooting a the ceiling with their camera and then they like push it upwards very slowly through uh, the trap door to the attic and there are these baby owls in there that for all the world look like gray gray aliens it's just terrifying like I could barely look at the screen cryptids that turn out to just be just to be birds 
So your favorite cryptid is a false cryptid. Every cryptid is false. Let's be honest with ourselves. I don't have a favorite cryptid, but I have a favorite person believed to be a super... Well, actually, I don't know if that really counts. No, no, I I really want to hear you commit to this now, please. Okay, so uh, I'm from Connecticut. And in Connecticut, in the 1800s, there was a guy called the Leather Man who walked a uh, 100-plus mile route uh, up and down this, like, river valley, essentially, Hmm. uh, to the point where he would be in the same location at the same time every year. He would be walking this route, and he would not speak to anyone. He would just silently walk this giant route. People would leave food and money out for him on, like, their fence fence post by their gate because they knew he'd come by on a specific day. And he would come by on that day, and he would take the shit and go. And he was called the Leather Man because he wore a suit made out of plates of, like, dried leather that he had, like, sewed together. And it was these dry, hard, like, plates of thick, ancient leather. And they would squeak against each other while he walked, like, squeak, squeak. And he'd walk down the road, and he was very mysterious. And there were places called Leatherman Caves, which were caves he was believed to sleep inside. And he was a real man. He really existed and was not fake or a myth, because he eventually died and they buried him, and his jacket is on display in a local museum in Connecticut. That's incredible. Yeah. One of these days, something people call the cryptid, cryptid is going to be discovered and placed in a museum, and then all bets are off for what you can fairly call a cryptid. Like, at that point, do you have to stop calling it a cryptid? Yeah, or you have to stop calling it a ghost when you find out that it's like a real guy or whatever. Right, yeah. So, what's the term for that? Excrypted, believed to be cryptid, formerly cryptid, real animal? We can call them legends? Sure. Le- legendary real thing. <laughs> legendary real thing is really good. I also love the uh, parentheses next to Leatherman on Wikipedia, which is vagabond. Like, vagabond yeah, is a, just a very good word. He's a renowned vagabond ab- about whom many myths and legends were created, but he was a real dude. It's to distinguish him from the utility knife that was named after him. Oh, I wish it was named after him. He deserves some kind of recognition like that. He walked so many miles. By the time of his death, he had not lost any fingers, unlike other tramps of the time or area. So he, apparently he went through a bunch of stuff unscathed except for cancer of the mouth due to tobacco use, despite his hard living. It's because he had those caves, you know? The reason why they lost those fingers is because of, like, frostbite, right? 1880s, living outside at nighttime in Connecticut, you're going to lose a finger because of frostbite. But if you are wise and have a cave, maybe you'll keep all your fingers. In parentheses, it really should say 10-fingered vagabond because that's the notable thing. Hmm. Yeah. Many-fingered wild man. I'd like like that put on my gravestone. Many-fingered... Wild man uh, is something that I want my children to remember me as. I'm looking at the uh, the Mothman page as you look at the Leatherman page, so we can mutually look at each other's pages. Mm. And uh, it's creepy as hell. Yeah, it's also been largely okay. Mothman has been co-opted, I will say, for some really weird stuff. Uh, there was this thing called the Mothman Prophecies. Some guy. I've was seen just that like, film. Uh, yeah, the based off of this book where the, this guy was just like, I think the Mothman told me things. Uh, oh yeah. 
There is a really shiny statue of him in West Virginia. There's always a different depiction of Mothman. No one ever depicts Mothman the same way, talks about him the same way. It is uh, one of the reasons for uh, the charisma and the loneliness of the Mothman is that the Mothman is elastic. You can say anything as a Mothman. You can say it's a man with moth wings, or you can say it's a moth with man legs or with man biceps or with a human face. Uh, You can say whatever, and the Mothman can't stop you because the Mothman isn't real, or is he? You're probably not going to get subpoenaed for a lawsuit. Do you guys know Odds Bodkin? No. I know. He was this, like, guy that my parents had a lot of cassette tapes of. He did sort of, like, storytelling recordings where he did mouth sounds and voices and played, like, weird instruments and shit. And you would listen to him and it would be this sonic wonderland of storytelling. And he did a Babe the Big Blue Ox story that I listened to constantly as a child. Mm. So just imagine, like, a grandpa doing, like, full voice acting voices for, like, for, for, like, I don't know, folk tales. Yeah, that sounds high quality. I bet that stuff's on YouTube. I'll link to it in the show notes. It probably is. I doubt he's around to defend his copyright anymore. <laughs> oh, Odds Bodkin, not to be confused with Odd Bodkins. Yeah, he named himself after like an idiom. Okay, so probably Odd Bodkins did as well. Odd uh, Odds Bodkin is apparently still alive and doing performances. He has a calendar on his website. Wow. I have to track this guy down and relive my childhood. You, yeah, you should go go see a concert. He was doing this and old 25 years ago, so <laughs> he must be ancient. In five days, he's going to do Fairy Folks in Old Oaks two-day residency, Write Your Own Fairy Tale in Scarborough, Mass- in Scarborough Maine at the Wentworth Elementary School. Oh, you think this is a Northeast thing? Like he only tours the the tri-state area? Uh, we used to listen to him, but we, we also like find, ran into him in person in like Montana once. He was performing at the Sweet Pea Festival. Okay, I thought you meant like on the street. Oh, no, yeah. He was performing for like a crowd of children. It was wild. That's great. He definitely has a pattern nowadays, though, because he goes from Maine to New Hampshire, New Hampshire to Massachusetts, New Hampshire again, New Hampshire, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, uh, then to Connecticut, uh, then Kentucky. Yeah, it sounds like he might have restricted his wanderings in old age. He's going to perform the Odyssey Belly of the Beast for four to, for four to six graders uh, March 5th, 2020 at Conant School, Acton, Massachusetts. So, you can get your tickets now. Or you could fill out this booking form and get him to play at Riot. Mm, I don't know if he'd go over so well, but I would enjoy it. I I mean, how many people work at Riot? Like 3,000. And how, you know, that's a lot of people. And how many, uh, like, say it's just 1% of them would be into an odds bodkin performance. That's still 300 people. And no, that's a, that's 30 people. Oh, right. Never mind. I can't math today. But if all 30 people bring 30 of their friends, oh, that's then, true. then that's like 900 people. I'm trying to do the math to see if I have 30 friends. 
<laughs> you can just check Facebook. Every person I've ever friended is someone I would die for. I would take a bullet for them in the chest right now without hesitation. Would you go to a concert though with them? That's a different story. No. Would you go to a concert that's just an old man playing a banjo and doing voices? I mean, that sounds like a rad concert. You have not made this any less interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell you about the first time I saw the movie The Mothman Prophecies? Please. Sure. That's apropos. So, uh, I had a friend who uh, was was wealthy and owned a large house and several goats. And all of us would go over to her house and we would hang out there and her goats, one of them had had a, a brain infection that made it act in an erratic way and it would uh, attack and or hump us. And then uh, after we were done interacting with this out of control unhinged goat, we would go into her house and we would watch like a movie. And there were once like 15 of us in there and we were watching the Mothman prophecies. And I remember becoming at first very scared and then quickly very tired and frustrated with Richard Gere and his behavior in this movie. And I remember my friends being really scared of the Mothman movie and then just becoming increasingly pissed off at Richard Gere and his relationship with the Mothman, who struck me as a, as a non-frightening, uh, goofy individual. So, uh, just this army of uh, young people gathered in a house to take shelter from a mad goat getting increasingly furious at the antics of Richard Gere. Yeah, well, I was the one, I think, getting increasingly furious at Richard Gere. I think some people in the room were like, oh my god, the, the, the Mothman is frightening. Uh, but I think several of us were just like, oh, this dude, get your shit together, Mr. Mothman believer. That's what people say to me on the street all the time. And honestly, it's very hurtful. I didn't know you looked like Richard Gere. Let's get off of my possible relation to Richard Gere before this becomes a thing. <laughs> you guys ready for the next topic? I'm ready for the next topic. I am. All right. All right. Laura, you have here, why aren't there more types of chair in common use? We have so many chair types in global society and we use basically only couches and regular chair chairs in public. Yeah, that's my big question. We got so many types of chair. We've got like thrones. Oh. We've got multiple different types of thrones depending on the culture that you're talking about. So, would would you say a throne is how is it different from a regular chair just uh, apart from ornateness? Uh, also size. Um Oh, sure, yeah. A throne is sort of like like an armchair, but the way I think of a throne, it doesn't really have padding in it. You sort of have to bring your own padding, you know? Into the form of your butt. Yeah, and it's large enough that you could like you know, sit in it like an evil prince with like your, your leg over one of the arms and you could like snarl, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then there are different types of thrones. Like I know in some Polynesian cultures, the, the chairs that they use are just like very differently shaped and apparently still comfortable. Um, there are lots of little like fold out sort of canvas chairs that exist. The ones that people bring to like uh, to, to like 4th of July parades. Some of them are quite comfortable. Um, yeah. We have a lot of recliner type chairs that are limited exclusively to pool environments. Why not bring them out into the public? That's my question. Rocking chairs though is the big one. Why not more rocking chairs ubiquitously? I find them very entertaining. Oh, because they're dangerous to cats. To cats? 
the cats their their tails get uh, trapped under the the rocker part. Interesting. Well, what if we put them outdoors, where these days fewer people have large amounts of cats gathering? Yeah, that is actually weird. Like cats are one of the few animals in this country, at least, where there are probably more cats indoors than outdoors. I'm not sure that's the case, especially as far as El Paso, Texas is concerned, uh, because... I'd say in... Well, not in counting most, El Paso, Texas. In most of the cities where, where I've lived, uh, most cats seem to be indoors. Well, tell me if this is also a thing in your local laws. Uh, in El Paso, Texas, once there are enough cats, I think it's either called a coven or a nest of cats... Uh, then that's the law term for it, not like whatever the official term is, flock of cats, whatever it may be. Uh, once about 10, 15 cats have gathered or are part of a single group, you are not legally allowed to uh, disturb them, get rid of them, try to kill them. They are a roaming public menace that the government has decided that it is too expensive to attempt to fight at that point. You will lose that battle. So they say, you cannot touch the cats anymore. So as far as El Paso, Texas is concerned, even though we aren't overrun with cats, once a group of cats is large enough, we can no longer fight it legally. Except with rocking chairs. That's right. You can disperse them by placing a chair in the midst as long as you can convince the judge that you weren't trying to disperse them. So this this idea, like the cats that, this this crowd of cats is too big. It's enshrined in law. It has cat sovereignty. Now the cats own the place. Well, hmm. they have their own, they have their own agency and they have their own, their own right to, to privacy and, and good health, you know, just through sheer numbers. So I find that interesting. They're recognized by the UN now. As with most things in the in American governmental structure, the cats have unionized and the government is terrified. Reagan is going to send in the strike breakers. He'll send in military cats to replace them. Cat scabs. Cat, uh, cats like taking jobs from unionized cats. Why aren't we afraid of immigrants from the Air Force? taking our jobs that's the real danger wait what <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm positing uh someone who is afraid of instead of immigrants from mexico taking jobs immigrants from positing that air force is a the air force is a foreign country uh and foreigners from the air force are returning from their tour of duty to take employment from us the civilians ah it's a that that's called a deep cut. You have invented a universe, and now you and now, although at first we were wondering what was going on, now you have opened the door to this universe, and we've stepped through it, and we're here with you. There is a Jim Storm Dancer shaped hole where an Air Force man uh, is destined to be. One thing I've learned being married to someone who was in the Coast Guard is that none of the other well, none of the other military branches take the Coast Guard seriously. Except for the Marines, apparently. And so, an Air Force person being married to April is going to be a complete disaster. May I get your opinion on something, Laura? Yes. Is a seatbelt, in fact, just a chair leash? 
Uh, a leash is usually something that ties uh, a, a low agency thing to the whims of a high agency thing, right? Like a human holding the leash of a dog or like a toddler leashed to their parent through one of those demeaning toddler leashes. Right. So if you think of a a chair leash, you could argue that the the hum, the human is the one who is being restrained and the one that is restrained is the low agency thing. So so in this scenario, the chair is doming the person. That's true. However, that's distasteful to me. <laughs> that's fair. Alternately, because the chair is usually part of a higher construct where a... Uh, the chair's in a theater or a car, yeah. So if you have a bu- if you have a if you have a seatbelt and you're in a car, if you're on a boat, if you're on an airplane, in fact, you are being dommed by the agent of that greater space, the grand puba, the arch demon, the plane itself, the car itself, the boat itself. So in fact, or the pilot. Well, now we're getting into is it the tool with the power or the person who uses the tool because the person couldn't use the tool unless the tool would you say that an airplane is dommed by a pilot well like who's really exercising the agency here when i strap myself into a plane am i at the whim of the plane the pilot or the engineer who coded the plane's automatic systems or the ceo of the company the engineer works for or the airport controller that's grim that's a that's a dark hole to to go down all right, we need to escape from this one as well. <laughs> Every topic, usually what happens is that I will suggest the new topic when there's a lull in the conversation. But with us, apparently, the the dynamic is that as soon as it gets too dark for people to handle, we have to switch topics. Uh, so with that in mind, I wanted to talk about... Um, so I was dating a, uh, a woman who had a four-year-old. This was several years ago. Um and I remember being really uh, interested, really enthralled with when she was talking to another woman who was currently pregnant about uh, the um, the vagaries of being pregnant. Um, and one thing that they both brought up, what they both talked about was the idea that like, you know, when you're pregnant, there's not really much room for your bladder. So as soon as your bladder has like a teaspoon of liquid in there, you really have to pee. And then you run to the toilet and you pee a teaspoon. And then like even long after you're no longer pregnant, you can see a teaspoon of any liquid and you get triggered by it. Just the the rage of this amount of liquid makes me furious because once I had to really pee, pee, pee really bad because of this amount of liquid. Um, and... I, it just made me think of like all the other times in my life where I've just really enjoyed really just sitting back and listening to two people who were experienced in a field that I knew nothing about, just listening to their shop talk. I, I really enjoy listening to, uh, the, to people like a, a conversation that I can like only half understand. Yeah. I enjoy listening to people who are very passionate or knowledgeable about something, talk about it, but I haven't heard that particular conversation. It sounds like an interesting one. Yeah, I always get weird about shop talk, especially in public spaces, because I, I, the first question that always comes to mind is, 
should I be listening? Is it illegal for me to listen? This is interesting, but I shouldn't be hearing. I don't want to violate their privacy, but also they're talking in public. So maybe they're talking with the cognizance that other people will hear them. But and then I go back and forth in this existential haze. And by the time I come out of it, uh, they're usually gone. And the opportunity has also gone with it, solving my dilemma, but leaving me feeling empty. So what you could do is you could bring along uh a tape recorder and record the conversation while you decide whether it's ethical for you to go back and listen to it later. <laughs> I think the I think the recording is a le- an actual legal crime. You can't record someone without their consent in several states, at least uh, uh, California being among them. So maybe you can listen to a live taping of the pregnant show. But you can't, uh, you just can't record it for uh, later enjoyment and or public postage. I don't think there's um, a moral hazard in just being near a conversation. Like, is it, is it really eavesdropping if they're talking loudly enough for you to like, if you can just hear them without, you're not like going up to them and like hiding behind a wall and cupping your ear. Uh, If you're just, if you just happen to be in the same room and someone's talking is it are you obliged to cover your ears no no if you're in a room with someone and they're choosing to speak in front of you they're they're aware of you and, and they're aware of you i would not right and the other thing is you could befriend these people and then perhaps if you're all in the same room as in in your capacity as friends they will again have a discussion about this about being pregnant perhaps Hmm. How would you like to have engaged in the pregnancy conversation that you overheard? Oh, I, I was happy to just sit by and, and watch it happen. And they both knew I was there. I, I, I was, in fact, in, a, in, in there and basically as a, in capacity as a friend. It sounds to me like you were, you were fully welcome to both hear this conversation and perhaps even to participate in it as a question asker. I hope so. Maybe I should track track down my ex and get her uh, get her blessing for for telling this story. I think uh, next time you're trapped in a room with people who are discussing peeing one thimbleful, you should say, "All right, I've got my questions. Here they are." Man, a thimble is not very large. I'm impressed. You guys ready for uh, another topic? Yes. Sure am. So this is a write-in topic. Uh, Ben asks, are you more likely to trust any given dog or any given cat? Cat Cat. without a single question. And a a substantial minority of dogs can kill me. Zero cats can kill me. Right. And I think that's the crux of it. I actually think I would trust a dog more than a cat, but the cat has no chance of of killing me and a dog has a non-zero chance of killing me so um trust in the sense of like an active verb that i am that i am entrusting my life to this animal it would be the cat y'all immediately went to murder which i appreciate but that isn't where i was thinking this question was going i was thinking would you trust this dog to be your accountant would you trust this cat to not eat your food if you left the room and came back dogs they some are really really sweet some are bastards many are on a spectrum of bastardry but cats you inch you both the cat 
and you initially start from a basis of we don't trust each other, but we both coexist in the same space for a amount of time. And because you initially both come into the relationship with boundaries that are unspoken but set, unlike a dog, which in many ways is presumptuous, the advantage just has to go to the cat. Yeah, the types of the types of trust that I that I negotiate in my daily life are associated with like interpersonal relationships and cooperation, right? Do I trust that this person will be able to get this work done? Do I trust that this stakeholder in my project won't run me ragged and murder me with with work, right? So like that kind of stuff, I would trust a dog more. But if we're talking about blanket all concept of trust, right? Murder's got to be on the table. Yep. So we gotta we gotta say like if this aminal wanted me dead, which one could do it? You know, no cats could do it. Cats wouldn't even try. They know they can't do it. So the cat and I would just let each other live, like you said, Nelson. Yeah, I, I, like I think it is important to note that like a dog is much more likely to be helpful and do helpful work for you. Depends depends on the dog though. Because often to get that work out of the dog, you have to do you have to put a lot in, right? And if and it also depends on the breed. Um, like some dogs are very high energy, and if they don't have a job, they will just demand your time, and then it becomes your job to entertain them. So the the other bit bit of this equation, trust is also engendered by a sense of uh, comfort and stability. When I'm around a cat, I never feel like I have to be a jester for the cat's pleasure. Uh, I have to feed it and I have to make sure it isn't surrounded by poop and I have to water it. There's other things that go into having a healthy relationship with your cat, but those are the basics. And otherwise, we just coexist in a space. With many dogs, I feel like this constant guilt because dogs are extremely codependent and they want all of you all the time seemingly so there is no stability there i am a jester for its pleasure whether that is leaving the comfort of my home to make sure it can go potty elsewhere or simply moving from my own business to taking some braided rope and shaking it around and playing with the dog because the dog requires it of me, and if I do not obey, uh, bad things happen. Uh, now I'm feeling bad that there aren't people who like dogs more uh, talking in this conversation because people have dogs on purpose, and there's got to be some reason why. Doesn't that blow your mind that people would do this? <laughs> well, I mean, when I was a child, I was repeatedly knocked over and like like bitten and run down by large dogs, so... I have I, I love dogs, but I'm like hyper aware of the dark side of, of dogdom, right? Like right. in first grade I had a friend with two large golden retrievers that ran me down and, and stood on my back while chewing on my hat. In second or third grade I had a friend with like a full size poodle that did the same thing to me. Uh, repeatedly throughout my childhood, large dogs jumped on me for some reason. And it took me until I was like Ten or eleven before I could like hold my own against large dogs, and then after that, I developed a positive relationship with dogs. I'm not afraid of them, but I'm like aware that a dog can fuck you up, right? Yeah, so, mm. it's on the table. Yeah, that that that's those were bad dogs. I had a dog uh, almost mess up me and my sister several times as a kid as well. 
thing with a cat is that it's just it's it can't hurt you. It's, you know, like like it, it can give you a scratch, but like you have to invite that. Usually, you, yeah. You have to pick the cat up. Usually. Yep. The thing is, I'm making a game about dogs. I love dogs uh, intellectually because the principle for dogs and and the the guiding principle for my game about dogs is that dogs are the projection of joyful enthusiasm into a complicated world for all of the things about dogs that I do not uh, fully trust. And for, and the amount of energy required is a little bit too much for me to own a dog. I really value what dogs represent and what they bring into the world for dog owners. For a good dog, that thing is the best possible one of the best beings that can exist and one of the most pure beings that can exist and i value that highly all right let's go out on a high note for that one like for once we have a topic that that ended positively that's good uh laura you have here uh would it actually be fun to be an animal i doubt it i believe animals have very frustrating lives this is true that's what i believe animals have no agency and they can't, they can't, you know, create the world that they want for themselves very easily. I imagine that's very frustrating. Yeah, I think probably probably the the only animals that like you, you when you think of animal lives, uh, the animals that have the the best lives are probably animals that are kept as pets by humans. I don't know. It depends on best, right? But it's definitely true that they suffer less in most circumstances. Right. But the thing that gets me is when people are like, "Man, I wish I was a dog," you know. Or I wish I was an animal. Or I wish I was my dog, right? Like, you hear people say that because they're, like, envious of not having any worries, you know, just, like, living life, relaxing, being taken care of. I don't actually think that's a very nice life, right? Like, these animals have to rely on other people. They can't create the world that they want for themselves. They can't get food down off of a high shelf. If someone (laughs) locks the doors, they can't get out. They need someone to let them go pee, You know, like animals don't have any agency. If they're unsatisfied with their lives, they can't pick up and move to Hollywood and try to make it big. Yeah, they can't improve their lives. I'm not convinced that any of the cats that I've had are like would would want to move to Hollywood. Like, I feel like they're all pretty like they don't know any better than than to be satisfied with their lot. And that's, if anything, even more depressing. Not just that they don't have agency to see a, to, to, to make a better world for themselves, but they also often can't see a better world. They don't know any better. They don't know anything. Maybe it would make you happy then, Nelson, if to know about the cats that used to be outdoor cats and are now indoor cats and do know about a better world that they can no longer have. Dark. So we're looking for an animal... With a sense of hubris, entropy, and regret. I think maybe bears, some types of bears, (laughs) might have enough agency to have what they probably consider to be a good life, right? Yeah, like like animals that are, are very large and probably not hunted terribly often. Whales? And they can, like, destroy the world around them. Yep. Uh, can can whales destroy the world around them the way a bear can? If a whale was pissed off, I wouldn't want to mess with it. Oh, true. They can wreck boats. I think that um, the the perception of an animal as like carefree and innocent, like 
the the perception of a bird. Well, first of all, the, the that, that perception of a bird comes from the fact that they can fly. But like when people look at a squirrel and think like, oh yeah, I want to be that squirrel because it leads a simple life. I think what they're thinking of is like their own life as a child when things were simple. Yes. Because there's a similar simplicity to it, except that the squirrel is probably incredibly hardworking. And it has infections on its body, and it probably doesn't have any food. And there's probably a larger squirrel that's mean to it. It probably has, like, parasites. And it probably doesn't even like its trees very much, but it doesn't know about the existence of nearby trees. You know? It, do- it doesn't know, oh, if I were to go four miles as the crow flies over this housing development, I could have a better tree. Because it's, it's not very intelligent, and it's very small. Speaking of intelligent... Uh, of not very intelligent and very small fish are driven by their urges even when they are more intelligent a salmon once a season you you, you they get the horny disease and uh everything in their lives everything that they could see or cognitively understand or want to be is totally overdriven by the horny disease and we see the same horny disease take place in humans more sporadically and often with elements of choice but for the salmon uh they swim up waterfalls it's ridiculous as a result of the horny disease driving them mad uh to be ruled by your urges is a dark thing i've never seen a human a horny human do anything as dumb as swimming up a waterfall i it is interesting that humans unlike most mammals i think the horny is constant oh not seasonal yeah no not seasonal yeah i think that shapes our lives um in a in a very different way than it would if like you could get all your horny out of the way like oh yeah this two weeks i'm and i'm done like spock yeah it would be like um if you could get all your pooping done for the month in one day there is kind of a lot of science fiction about like what if horniness was seasonal and right. it's, it's always, you know, Spock level shit where it's like, oh, because horniness is seasonal, we now battle each other, you know? But there's also like, I'm, I'm curious, I haven't read much of this science fiction, but I'm curious, like, if they also approach the idea of like, well, uh, is horniness, horniness is like, is it everybody gets horny at the same, in the same two weeks of the year? Uh, because I don't think that's actually how it works for most animals that have heat. They will, they'll have different cycles, each of them individually. Um, and I think that's two pretty different, like, cultural outcomes if you're trying to write a story about either of them. I, I, don't, I don't remember whether seasonality or people being on cycles or whatever affected the horny sci-fi about that stuff that I've read, you know, very little of. But right. uh, I do know that a very large number of animals do have, like really truly season-based horniness you know like animals that are having that are laying eggs in the spring you know oh sure yeah that actually does make sense and sometimes don't some animals have like asynchronous horniness so that like an egg can be laid and someone else will fertilize it later man that must lead to a very calm and reasonable life yeah you just you just spray eggs you don't need to involve anybody else you don't need to even take up anybody else's time Right, right. You'll just, you'll just, someone will come by and say, oh, some eggs. And they'll go fertilize them. That sounds very convenient. It's the death stranding of uh, reproductive cycles because much like lost cargo, uh, you've just got this thing and people are like, oh, I'll take care of that thing. 
and you're like, yeah, I did my own thing. I did what I was supposed to do. And you're all kind of contributing to the exist the total lifetime existence of your species, but none of you bears the burden on your own. Are you talking about the asynchronous multiplayer? Yeah. This is a podcast about Death Stranding now, just like everything run by game developers right now. I came back from Toronto. I flew s- several thousand miles thinking, finally, I won't talk about Death Stranding. Had nothing but conversations about Death Stranding. I've been playing Death Stranding. Oh, no. <laughs> I think it's very good. That's, that's great to hear. I'm trying not to engage with the idea that Hideo Kojima made it. I think the game itself is good. Sure, that's very fair. I haven't played it yet. I intend to, but I really wanted to go into it knowing nothing, and that's been a complete failure. I know so much about Death Stranding now. Yeah, you probably know that you can do a PP, right? And it turns into a mushroom. That was pretty much the first thing I learned, yeah. Yeah, and you can make a poop grenade. All right, we need to we need to cut this off before we before we ruin Death Stranding for more poor folks who might want to play it themselves one day. Uh, Nelson, you have here um, advantages and disadvantages of different book bindings. Yes, tell us about these book bindings. I have very, uh, I have opinions about book bindings cultivated from my time being a children's librarian, as well as my time being a reader. I've been a reader for a very long time. So paperbacks, hardcovers, library editions, omnibuses, um, different types of paper, different sorts of collections. There can be collections too big, collections too small. How much you fit into those pages? How thick are those pages? How creased is this book? Does it mess up images if this is a picture-based book? There is so much to book bindings, but we don't think about it. We just go into our version of Barnes and Nobles and we just say, hey, that's a book up there. Or we say, hey, paperback or hardcover. There's different degrees of hardcover. We only think about it when it's annoying, like when the 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 picture is like printed too close to the binding and it, it's like got the shitty curve leading, like because the page is curved because the other, the other pages are in the way. Yes. And so you can't really, the, the picture gets distorted towards the, the center of the book. And the worst thing is like when they try to put a picture like across two pages and then there's that gross seam in the middle. Yeah, there is. When we talk about binding, we aren't just talking about the outside of the book. We're also talking about the inside of the book. We're talking about everything that has to do with its design. So uh, I sure do got opinions. And what I will say is, honestly, the paperback and the stigma against it is pretty dang classist. Because most the most paperbacks are actually not only pretty okay, but ideal for most types of write of writing content. I mean, I think the paperback is a very convenient form factor for a book. Mm. Yeah, I think hardcover is not the is not relevant to most things in my life, except to Realms of Runeterra, the collectible book that my writing is now in. I feel like most books that like that have both a hardcover run and a paperback run. Like the hardcover is really just like, we're going to make a more expensive version for the people who want it soon. Yeah. Very rarely do I see a hardcover book and I'm like, Oh, this is essential to the experience. Right. So I will say for high volume use, hardcovers are essential. Like in a library, if a book is a paperback, there's no chance. It's, 
it's going to be a real hard life for that book at least, which is why you'll see many paperbacks reinforced with laminated covers for manga and for other things that are paperbacks, but will be flipped through quite a bit or interacted with uh, a lot. Um, but as far as hardcovers go, you, there is an element of early access to it. Like this is the first opportunity you'll have to touch it. It's, but it, it also seems, especially in our modern culture, to be a bit of a collector's edition thing. I care about this thing enough that I want it in hardcover. And it'll look fancy on my shelf, which I think is actually the, the, the thing that you're buying, you're paying when you're, when you're paying for a hardcover is like, you want the physical trophy as much as, as much or more as the experience of reading it. So... When, given that context for your own reading, when you see someone who owns a whole lot of hardbacks or paperbacks, does that affect the way you see their book collection? Not really. Yeah, I, I feel like the the way I've come into my book collection is so haphazard that like it's it's basically random chance whether or not like I have a lot of hardcover books that I got used for incredibly cheap. Me as well. Yeah. Like, I used to go to one of the used bookstores in Mountain View. Which was it? The the big one in downtown Mountain View that closed down. Uh, I don't remember the name of it. But you know the one I'm talking about, right? It was, I do, it was yeah. massive. Yeah, and you could just get anything there. And it, they had new stock constantly, and they really were good at pointing up the, the new stuff. And you could head over there and just, like, get, get true, tr- like, stuff that would be, like, 30 bucks for, like, four bucks it was good i wish i lived around a used bookshop because that is a thing i wish was more of a component of my life in general use things things that have been loved by someone but have now been passed on uh fascinate me for multiple reasons including the history embedded with the item seeing someone's name written on the inside cover if that if you see that in a library book that's just disrespectful if it's on the inside of something at a used bookshop it's something like oh who was marie and who was the person who, uh, and what impact did she make on this teacher for this teacher to write, um, I wish you much success and give her a book about uh, how to win friends and influence people. On what occasion was this given? Books are one of the few things that where reading a used copy of a thing almost feels more impactful than a uh than reading something fresh uh because you do get the context of people who have held that thing and appreciated this work before you um and nothing that has been used to approximate that digitally like uh kindle notes you can see how many people have highlighted the same passage in the book you're reading it doesn't really get the same effect across yeah i think it would be much more um fitting like to 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 get the effect that you're looking for if you actually just saw one person's highlights than an aggregated one yeah the the digital uh equivalent that comes to mind is this doesn't really happen anymore but renting video games like you rent a jrpg you rent like final fantasy 2 for the super nintendo from blockbuster and it has someone's old save file on it and you get to load that up and see like what they named their characters and how they specced their characters. And you get a tiny glimpse into their personality. Yes. I've had that with uh, picking up used copies of Zelda games because you pick up yeah. that Zelda game and someone has named a character fart and you're like, 
that person was either in their 30s or in their teens. There's no (laughs) in-between. Oh, come on. I liked fart jokes in my 20s. I mean, sure, but did you name your Zelda character fart? I feel like there's there's a period of time in which most people will name their character fart. And I will not – like, I'm open to finding out what that is, but I think it's fairly concrete. I think we can pin it down. I mean, when the Chrono Trigger remake for, like, 2DS or 3DS or whatever came out, I was definitely naming some of those characters, like, Poo Poo Pee Pee, basically. <laughs> like, and I, I had, like, a full-time job at a international game publisher at the time, so. Okay. Did, did they hear about your character names and fire you? You got to work. You got to work on a day to day basis with people who can tolerate you naming a character fart or whatever. You know, that's true. Yeah, that's important. I thought that was yeah. something that grew people grew out of. I think hearing that that isn't the case actually gives me some hope for mankind. Well, but you, you were saying yourself, like you grow back into it in your thirties, and I think thirties is like a little bit late. But um, I think there's a period of time where like you feel like, oh, I'm too mature for fart jokes now. And then you just get over that and feeling the need to, to appear mature. Yeah, it's posturing, you know, like part of the struggle of differentiating your adult self from your childhood self is to reject your childhood things. And, yeah. you know, then as you get older, you're like, oh, actually, that's not what makes me an adult. What makes me an adult is my responsibilities and the way that I treat other people and stuff like that. You know, and you can still do fart jokes. What makes me an adult is the way I have to make a noise every time I get out of a chair. Or the fact that, like, I'm full of despair. I think it's time to call it. Um, Thanks so much for being on. Thank you for having us. This was wonderful. And it's nice to talk to you again via the voice, Laura. It's been a bit. You've been on a never-ending journey since I last saw you. You've been to, like, four four different places. Uh, Laura, is there... um, If this is something that you want out of life, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at... At sign L Mache, that's L M like in Mary, I C H E T on Twitter. And then you can go to my website, which is lauramache.com. And in those places, you can see my opinions about things or lists of video games that I've made. Do you also have a live journal that people can follow for your opinions on things? No, but I I don't know. I've been trying to find out like a new website to run because I own so many good URLs. So, you know, maybe in the near future, I'll have a a fun website. I own datachug.club and datachug.download and I own casualty.report and I own um, malarkey.zone and a couple others and I don't know what to do with them. But maybe in the near future, I'll have a, an additional website that will be fun if for folks. you need people just to contribute to any of those, uh, hit me up because I would be very happy to contribute to malarkey.zone. Oh, thank you. And if you uh, if you visit any of those sites, you can find out, uh, well, you can just check on the progress of them at any time just by typing in the URL. Yeah. And you'll you'll see a blank page. Uh, did I already? I forget already. Did I already ask you, Nelson, the same question? Not yet. Okay, go ahead then. All right. So, if folks want to follow me, you can follow me uh, at at Rit Nelson W R I T Nelson on Twitter. Uh, I talk all the time about gamecube games and about games i've worked on and other things and it's just a real great place to follow me i also have this 
uh, revamped Patreon for an airport for aliens currently run by dogs called patreon.com slash strange scaffold, where I'll be posting all the news about my work on my games and that are made by my company, as well as news about streams and videos and things that I plan to do in the future because I don't have enough to do. So I'm just going to add more to my schedule. That's how you live a healthy, happy life. I have been told. If there's anything I know about freelance writers is that they're not busy enough. No. And that's why I'm actually kind of honestly looking forward to making some chill video content and making things related to my work, not just because I'm very proud of what I'm making, but also uh, it's different. It's new. It fits in a different space in my life and finding healthy ways to break up my time when previously it was just, uh, according to my Spotify, from 7 p.m. to 4 a.m. Uh, work. That is, uh, that seems like a real good direction for me personally and uh, professionally. Yeah, good luck. How's the how's the Patreon doing? I'm honestly really surprised uh, at how well it's going. Uh, I knew that people were excited and wanted to support not just Dog Airport game, but my work in general. And that was immediately confirmed. Um, and it's part of the reason why I am so excited to not just make my game, but also make things that are tangentially related to my game like just regular just stream stuff uh and so on because i know i have this group of people who really care about the things i've made and want to see me talk about things in general so uh i want to talk to those folks and uh hopefully show them that their trust and their time and their uh faith was uh well placed Sounds good. All right. How do we end this, guys? You, you have any ideas? Do you have a catchphrase that you like? Oh, dang. Tall order. Remember the Mothman, kids. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can discuss the episodes at the Topic Lords subreddit at r slash Topic Lords. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can find me on the Fediverse as mogwai underscore poet at mastodon.social. Also, I'm on Twitter. And you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early and get access to the Topic Lords Discord where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.